Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mays. On today's episode, we're discussing the Hugo Awards Best Novel Finalists. Welcome to episode 63, the Hugo Slate Review for Best Novels. I'm Alex, and I've read three out of six of them so far. I'm Freya, and I've now read five out of the six. I'm Macy, and I am at four out of six. I win! Yay! Yeah, you win. Well done. (laughs) Freya, you are always going to win. That's true. She's too organized, (laughs) is the thing, yes. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And today, as you may guess, we are reviewing the best novels from this year's uh, slate uh, of the Hugo Awards, which is 2019, which is the novels from 2019. Exactly. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I am not looking forward to having to choose between these. Um, We have an amazing selection this year. Uh, It's pretty great. But before we get into all of that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I fell with great rejoicing upon the new KJ Charles, which has just come out. This one is called yes. Slippery Creatures. It is set between <laughs> World War One, World War Two era in England. And it's very high on the spy hijinks and stabbings and danger and snark and is extremely <laughs> enjoyable. Everything that I was looking for out of a KJ Charles in this uh, time of trial. So I highly recommend that. Yep. I have also read an arc of A Deadly <laughs> Education, the new Naomi Novik book. <laughs> Which I will not talk about. You can't make that noise, Macy, because it's in your inbox too. <laughs> it is, but I have too much to do, and I thus cannot dedicate no. the right amount of attention to it. And I'm Macy is being sad. virtuous and finishing her actual writing before she reads this. I was weak and just devoured it over the <laughs> It's incredible. I won't talk about it too much now, uh, except to say that this is Thank basically you. grown up Harry Potter, in that it is set at the Scholomance which is an incredibly fucked up magical school. And that's all I'll say about it, except that it's really, really, really good. And I am also almost all of the way through reading an advanced copy of Jen Lyons' The Memory of Souls, friend of the serpents, Jen Lyons. Uh, I'm very, very excited to read book four because she's been teasing us with little snippets about what's going to happen in book four. (laughs) So I thought I'd better get on my... Get on board and read book three, finally. <laughs> finally, she says. It's this not is out the one yet. with the elephant on it, right? Yeah, it's got an elephant on the front. And yes. yes, like the first two books in the Chorus of Dragons series, it's very fun, full of adventures, full of humor, big cast. Everybody has related to everybody else in like four different ways. <laughs> I'm having a great time. <laughs> Am I your sibling or your spouse? Or I don't both know. because of previous... Previous lives, soul swapping. It's got everything. It's got everything. I need to yeah. read the second one because I hear that's where it gets gay. Oh, yeah. That is where it gets gay. I'm making my way through the second one right now. Um, the problem is that Jen is brilliant and writes incredibly fast. Faster than I do. And yeah. I write very, very fast. And yeah. so, like... With all my other friends' books, I can keep up with them, but Jen releases, like, a new book every eight months, and they're, like, doorstop. They are big books. Jen's, Jen's daily word count is 6,000 words is her target. Um, but I believe it is technically so my cool. turn yes. to say what I have been reading this week, and my answer to what have you been reading this week, Macy, is fuck off. 
<laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> fuck right the fuck off. It's been a plague and I've written 18,000 words in the past two weeks. Yeah, you may so see. We're very proud just... of you for that. That's great. Ah, and because past Macy makes decisions, they are all words about plague. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been fun um it's been super fun um however i have consumed some media um which is that i tripped and fell and accidentally um shotgunned three john wick movies which is all the john wick movies in quick succession (laughs) and then stumbled around like the action movie equivalent of someone who's done way too much tequila in about 30 seconds um Does this mean that your book is going to grow some, like, random scenes in which somebody kills eight people with a penknife? Um, I'm, no. Maisie. I can neither. Listen. Maisie. Kiara was not originally meant to kill someone in that scene, but then I watched the John Wick movies and then she did. I I had a suspicion (laughs) that that was what happened. You came into chat being like, so my character's killed someone. I was like, hmm, I wonder where this came from. It was a logical extension of what had been happening in that scene previously. Yeah. And I that's all I'm saying. But I will say that um, I had some fascinating craft thoughts about how few fucks John Wick 2 gives about literally anything other than the action sequences they wanted to happen. And I'm going to be trying to pull that apart a little bit, I think, and make use of it in my Demon Knights book, which is what I want to be writing next. Um, nice. Because I think it was super interesting. And now I kind of want us to do like an action movies episode or something. Anyway, Alex, on you. I have naturally been reading a lot of fan fiction. Um, yes. The only other media that I've been consuming has been visual media. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched several more episodes of The King Eternal Monarch, which is a uh, Korean drama that's on Netflix right now. It's, it's about a hot bodyguard. Good. It's got a hot bodyguard in it, and my god, he is hot. Um, that is Alex my is future kryptonite. husband. My, my, my specific kryptonite, yes indeed. is hot bodyguard. A hot body guys as several of the serpent cast discord members will attest <laughs> it's great it's i think i already uh, talked about it on a previous episode so i won't go into it again right now um i also watched kung fu hustle which is one of my favorite movies of all time if we're doing an action movies episode that should be one of the tentacles i'm saying it now um isn't that the one with the cartoon panda no it's not the one with the cartoon That's panda this kung is a live panda. action one Okay, this, Kung this, Fu Panda. this is Kung Fu Hustle. Now. I was being very confused. <laughs> no, no. This is this is a live action uh Chinese movie from like 2006, I want to say. Okay. And it has it's so funny. It's like a comedy, but an action comedy. And it has like every single trope of every Chinese kung fu movie ever. It's brilliant. Uh, about the time in the second movie where John Wick kills two goons by slapping a horse until it kicks them in the head, I realized Incredible. that John Wick is also a comedy. <laughs> Good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you may remember, Macy, when you were first trying to sell me on The Untamed and I first started watching it and Lan Wanji does that thing with his uh, his Guchin. 
<laughs> yeah. uh, and I made snarky comments about how, oh, yes, this is very cool. You were like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I was like, yeah, it was cool the first time I saw it in Kung Fu Hustle as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's where this is from. There's sure. a scene. We'll get to that. Uh, and also the last couple days, I have been watching a Hulu original series called The Great, which is a extremely fictionalized, <laughs> very funny uh, adaptation of Catherine the Great's life. Uh, there's lots of stabbings, uh, there's lots of cool women, it's very funny, and it's, like, in this very, like, modern colloquial language as well, mm -hmm. which gives it an element of humor as well. Great Huzzah! stuff. Huzzah! Exactly! Have you seen it? <laughs> I watched two episodes, um, Warning for Animal Harm. Warning for a lot of stuff, Warning actually. Warning for a lot of stuff, but, Warning like... for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's very fun. I really want to see fun. it. It looks really fun, except I refuse to pay for streaming services that aren't Netflix, so... Anyway, let's go ahead and have an episode now. Um, as is traditional, you should probably know this already, dear listeners, but we are going to be spoiling Spoiler! everything. Everything. So uh, that's your fair warning. Uh, back away now. Yes. Uh, Freya, would you like to lead us off? Yes, I would. All right. So the first of our six books is The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow. And keen listeners may remember we actually tentpoled this book earlier for our Portal Fantasy episode, so we did talk about it in quite a lot of detail at that point, especially coming at it from the point of view of a Portal Fantasy. But as a refresher, this is a book about a young mixed-race girl called January Scala who lives in a house with a kind, question mark, mysterious gentleman who takes care of her as his ward while January's father is off adventuring around the world collecting interesting objects for a society that this gentleman is part of. And as the book progresses, January learns more about her father and also about her mother and learns about her own powers to open doors and travel between worlds. It's got a lot of the things that we love, so it has that portal fantasy aspect. Uh, it has a framing narrative with a story within a story as January is finding out about uh, the love story between her parents and how her mother's life uh, unfolded. And I think Alex Harrow herself has talked about how this is very much a wish fulfillment story yep. for mm -hmm. quiet girls who grew up surrounded by books dreaming of more. Because it's very much about finding your place in the world and discovering power in a world where people are trying to disempower you. It's a really, really, really beautiful book. I think one of my favorite things about, about it is that it is a really gorgeously written, mm -hmm. like the pacing of it is very smooth, even though it's quite a complicated story. It's fit together mm -hmm. in a really lovely way and it never feels like it's slowing down, even though you really want to slow down and mm -hmm. really relish and pour over the words. This is This book I've seen in bookshops sold more or less as a commercial mainstream. This is fic fiction with a capital F, not just put on the science fiction and fantasy shelf. And I think it's because the style of writing and the fact that it's historical fiction mm. and historical fantasy before it becomes other world fantasy does make it very much in that tradition of those books that straddle the line between literature, you know, and we can argue until the cows come home about literary fiction versus genre fiction. But this one definitely fits into that sort of more commercial liter literary sphere. And I think that one of the things that it's tackling is um, the way that January is part of the collection, the concept of people as objet d'art, right? 
which kind of very much is a literary theme, the idea of who gets to be an object and who gets to be a subject, right? And I think that's something that's very relatable, um, even without a speculative element, right? That you could very much imagine this book um, dealing with similar themes in not super yeah, similar ways, purely in the context of mm -hmm. colonialism and our world. Yeah, it has, like, the, the magic system in it is almost a little bit more magical realism. Uh, and so I can definitely see how it has that crossover appeal from people who read exclusively genre and who read exclusively literary fiction. Um, it's a very accessible kind of magic system. It's not something that has tons and tons of rules burdening it down. Um, it's It has that very lighter than air quality, which I really admire uh, mm. in works like this. Um, just a really good book. And this is uh, Alex Harrow's debut novel as well. Yeah. There's a couple debut novels on this list, which is incredibly, mm -hmm. incredibly impressive. Are there three or... Hold on, I'm counting. I want to say that Alex was already um, an award-winning author true. for short fiction. That's true, I believe that she was, yeah. Now, right? yep. um, I think, did she, she win the Hugo for short story last year? Possibly. I think so. Anyway, she's... Great person, incredibly talented writer. <laughs> great person, wonderful, very wonderful talented. Book. I yeah. loved it a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a great book. It's a great book about um, being a woman, being not white in a context where people see that mm -hmm. and treat you differently because of it. Um, and it's a great book about trying to find a place for yourself in the world where you don't quite fit. So I think that it's a yes, strongly recommended read. And it has an yes. important dog, yes. which it I know does. some people enjoy. Yes. And nothing bad happens to the important dog. Well, I, I mean, mean, I think some end. bad stuff happens to the dog, but the dog doesn't the die. The dog right. does not die. Yes. Right. right. And beautiful, important. beautiful writing. So just a very strong <laughs> contender. We have six extremely strong contenders this year, I think. Oh. I know. It's going to be a tough choice. Uh, it shall is. We, shall we move on to the second one? Yes. So... You two, which of you have read Middle Game? I have. Yes. Okay. So Middle Game is a book full of alchemy. Um, and Middle Game is a... I was been kind of trying to think about how to describe the world building. Um, and it's kind of as if the magicians in our world's attitude, but like the alchemy out of Full Metal Alchemist to a degree, but like more in the traditional Western um, Hand of Glory style alchemy. So this is a book about a Would you like to mention the author? <laughs> Middle Game by Shauna Maguire, yes. Um, this is a book about a homunculus who was created by the greatest alchemist of all time who had reshaped the way that magic worked in the world by shaping the imagination of children. Mm. And so she makes this homunculus creature out of corpses and as is necessary with homunculus creatures made of corpses, he murders her. Obviously. Yeah. Um, and so this happens in like the 1920s, the late 1800s, uh, where she is refused entry to the Council of Alchemists for being a woman. Um, and so he continues on her great work after her death by trying to make manifest in the world this... Oh, I forget the name of the thing. Um, do you remember the na exact name of the... No, I can't remember. By trying to make manifest in the world this contract, this piece of magic that can control everything. Mm. Yeah. And he does this by creating children. 
um, which he experiments on and raises in various ways and discovers that the best way to make this contract manifest in the world is to split it into two pieces the language piece and the mathematics piece and put mm. them into twins so he makes a bunch of twins and some of them get kept in the lab to be raised and some of them get sent out into the world and our story revolves around two of these twins who do not know that they have a sibling called roger who is the boy who has the language part and dodger who is the girl full of maths and Dodger is so much tiny Macy that it's uncanny to me. Yeah. Because yep. she is, yeah, <laughs> Freya's laughing now. But uh, she is just so, she can't understand the other kids around her. She just wants to be left alone to do her maths and be brilliant in peace. And there's this boy on the other side of her brain who understands her and can intercept the world and reinterpret it for her. Roger. And so this is a really fascinating, twisty novel full of time resets because they can reset time to try again when they fuck up. Mm -hmm. um, and friendship and betrayal and healing from betrayal. Um, and it's really masterfully done. Uh, and yes, full of lots of gross alchemy. Like the magic in this is kind of really gross and it, I love it. Yeah. Like yeah. the cheap... Yeah, it yeah, it's very creepy. There's some really creepy scenes, especially with the other twins. And Sean Maguire is really yes. good at doing people who are brilliant in the service of an idea or a cause in a way that is completely mm -hmm. unhuman. Yes. And so this the... is full of like terrible, terrible people. Yup. Terrible homunculus dad has an underling who is made of crows. That's cool. That's badass. And she is completely... I don't know if sociopath sociopathy is the right word, but like she just wants to like cut people open all of the yeah. time. Like any time that she's doing anything, she would rather be murdering. Well, yeah. mood though. <laughs> <laughs> and like this book is full of hands of glory made of like, so a hand of glory is made from the hand of someone who was murdered, right? Mm. And there's like a couple of page discussion in the middle of the book about how the best way to get a hand, to make a hand of glory out of, is just to murder the person yourself because you can't tell otherwise whether a person was really murdered or it was an accident. Sure. And then it might not work when you need it to. So just kill them yourself. Just kill yeah. them yourself. That seems sensible and practical advice to me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this horrible bit where Roger recognizes the hand that person he thought was his girlfriend but is actually an agent of terrible homunculus dad brings out to use and he's like that's my friend who died in a fire hang on yeah i, I love that intersection of the old alchemical ideas like hands of glory with modern day society yeah yes. well, not, not quite modern i think it's sort of very is it like very very late 80s for some well, of it. so they're growing up kind of around the age that we were growing up. Yeah, right? um, yeah. So it covers the eighties, nineties, noughties. And it's set in like the Boston, in Boston, and in the Bay Area. A lot of it takes place in the Bay, in um, in Berkeley. Um, was it Berkeley? Was the actual university they were at? There's lots of stuff of like nerds trying to do PhDs and being useless at humans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh... the, but the structure of it is 
amazing. Like I, I was really yes. impressed with all of the things to do with the time loops and the time resets right. and the fact that you can get so engaged with what's happening in a particular time and then you'll realize it's all going to hell yeah. and then and they then will have undo to do it. Yeah, then it gets undone. But at the same time, you know it's all going to hell because Shauna does one of the things that I've seen described as lazy storytelling, but which I personally love, which is opening in a moment of crisis mm-hmm. and being like, how did we get here? Mm. But then you really want to well, know how we got here. And, yeah. you, and, yep. and because of the way the book is structured, you don't know for most of the book whether we are actually going to end up at that crisis right. or whether that was a timeline that's now been erased. Or if we do get to that crisis, is it inevitable? Can we then rewind from it? Oh, it's so good. So we have kind of a link from the first one, uh, the first tentpole to the second one through terrible homunculus dad and <laughs> terrible sort of semi-father figure. Terrible colonialist dad. Terrible yeah. colonialist dad in the first one as well. That's wonderful. I love that. Shall we move yeah. on to the, the next one? Yes. Jeez. So, so how are we going to uh, do this segue thematically? I can, I can tell yeah. you, and it's time loops. Time Ooh. loops. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, the third tentpole is the Light Brigade by Cameron Hurley, uh, which, as you may guess, has time loops. Uh, it is about a uh, character called Dietz, uh, who signs up to be a soldier in this war in a future probably a couple hundred years from now when Mm. the world has been taken over by corporations uh there's no states anymore there's no nations it's all just corporations that's fucking dark man uh in fact the first like 85 percent of this book is fucking dark man (laughs) it's cameron hurley it's cameron hurley um major major warnings for all the gore related to war uh Aww. every nasty gross way that you can imagine someone dying in war happens also there's some teleportation related gore some people being <laughs> put back together wrong which might Ugh. yeah it's yeah it creeps me out <laughs> um i had i had a really difficult time with this book through like i said the first 85 percent or so just because mm-hmm. it was so gruelingly dark and depressing and fucking grimdark with like the corporations and like the late 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 stage capitalism is terrible and fascist uh corporate governments and so forth and people don't have rights except for like what the corporations give them it's horrible to think about but then cameron hurley fucking turns it around and in the last 15% of the book, like, I spent the whole book kind of going, like, this is super dark. I'm not really into, like, modern war novels. This is not really my thing. And then, like, in the last fucking 15%, it becomes ho-punk as fuck. <laughs> and Cameron fucking Hurley. Like, this book that I was, like, sort of trudging through and, like, I, come on. Like, I know people that whose whose taste I deeply, deeply respect have loved and enjoyed this book. I want to see what the big deal is and it fucking comes out of nowhere and punches you in the face and it's great she won my entire heart at the 98 percent mark of the book (laughs) wow okay i know just like coming in for the kill in like the last three or five pages and i kind of don't want to tell you too much about it because the twist is so good um but the the major plot device in this book is that the soldiers are deployed using this technology that breaks them apart into light. 
uh, which is why it's called the Light Brigade. Uh, and then they're put back together wherever they're supposed to be. And for certain few rare members of the the army, um, this deployment mechanism, instead of sending them to where they're supposed to be, bops them around in time. <laughs> and some most people like go crazy within like the first drop or two, uh, the first couple times they're deployed. Um, some people go crazy right away. Some people come back put together wrong, and it's gross. Um, but the main character, Dietz, manages to go through dozens and dozens of these drops without going crazy. And from the first one that they ever go on, they are being bopped around in time. So you're dealing with, like, this time loop bullshit, which is incredibly well done. Because the whole time you're wondering, how are they going to fix this? And the, f mm. um, like everything else is out of order. And so you have all of the other characters who are going through time in a linear way. And then the main character who is experiencing their relationships with these characters. Like these, the other characters have relationships with the main character. And the main character has to experience those relationships way out of order. Uh, so yeah, it, it becomes just really hope punk as fuck about like, what we owe each other. And um, I have a quote from the book, which I want to read to you. A lot of people ask how you can be a paladin and a soldier, even if you take an oath of vengeance, but you're committing to fight the greater evil. It doesn't mean that you won't sometimes do some evil yourself. It doesn't mean that you aren't sometimes fighting for the empire. It just means that in the end, you do the right thing. She leaned forward, but that's the vital question. What is the right thing? And so like in the last like 15% of the book, it's all this question of what is the right thing? How do we do the right thing? Like, how do we save each other? So good. So good. So I'm a little bit skeptical always about like single characters getting to decide what is the right thing when they're also playing along and being complicit to systems in order to do that. Mm. So, so I don't know how it navigates that. Um, it's more, well, it has, this is probably going to be my go-to book rec when people ask me what books are really hope punk. Um, because the point that it makes is that the corporations forgot that the people are the power. And the thing that this character does is whatever they can do to save their people. Mm -hmm. And to, again, without, I don't actually want to spoil the end of the book. Um, okay. But it's more like emphasizing like we have to take care of each other and we have to like operate with a, within a community and take care of the person next to you. And mm -hmm. when you get that sort of lesson at the end of the book, it casts all of the other stuff that happened at the like through the rest of the book into sharper focus because yes, this has always been this character's driving force. Like they have always wanted to take care of the person person next to them when they were in mm. like a platoon, like they were taking care of their fellow fellow soldiers and like trying to save them. Um, and they never left an injured comrade behind, mm -hmm. which is really cool. And you don't actually like this character does have a gender. You don't find out what the gender is until like like 90% of the way through the book, which I thought was very cool. Um, very bisexual, very queer. Okay, well, that sounds super cool. Um, yes. Do you want to keep going? Yes, incredibly very good book. Uh, another strong contender for the Hugo. Excellent. Well, speaking of very queer books, <laughs> uh, so the next book on the list is The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders, mm -hmm. which I had not read, but I read for this episode. This is a book split between two narrators, so one of them is called Sophie, and she is someone who starts off as a, 
vaguely um, activist university-age student uh, who eventually ends up torn between loyalty to and love for her friend Bianca and her desire to make contact with and learn more about uh, an alien race that lives in the dark, cold part of the planets because this is set in a tidally locked planet, which I'll talk a bit more about. And the other narrator is called Mouth, who is starts the story as one of a band of mercenaries who – do a bit of smuggling and a bit of escorting people around as they travel. But she is the last survivor of a group of people from a religious group that got essentially wiped out. And so she has this mm-hmm. desire within her to find out more about her people because she was never – trying to think of the best way to say this – at the time that the people were wiped out, she had not – been given all of the secrets and the information like she wasn't quite of the age she hadn't gone through certain ceremonies and so she feels incomplete like she got paused in her development at a certain time and is trying to work out more about her people and find out as much as she can when there are none of them left right and these two people their storylines keep intersecting they keep coming across one another they become very entwined in terms of their lives and It is difficult to describe this in terms of plot. If I was asked to pitch it in terms of plot, I think I would have trouble. But it has Mm -hmm. some absolutely amazing world-building aspects, one of which is, of course, this idea of a tidally locked planet where one side of the planet is always facing the sun and the other is always Mm -hmm. facing away from the sun and how different races survive on this planet. So it is inhabited by some we are assuming humans who came <laughs> came to colonize colonize the planet and ended up only being able to live within the temperate zone which is a very fairly sure. thin strip where the temperature is compatible with human life and this race of aliens who becomes important are people who have been living on the planet for a much longer time and they live in the night so the dark mm-hmm. cold side of the planet and it's got a lot of interesting things to say about if you were going to build a city in that temperate zone, how would the social uh, stratification work when, you know, obviously the the most rich and influential people would live in the most comfortable areas, but as soon as you get too far <laughs> into the dark or too far into the light, it becomes much less pleasant to live. Mm. And how do you live if there is no diurnal variation to dictate your day and so there are two cities in that temperate zone one of which says you can basically do whatever the hell you want there's no time enforced on you you can be doing anything at any time you can sleep whenever you want you can party whenever you want so it's a little bit more anarchistic whereas the other city is Mm -hmm. very tightly controlled everybody has shutters to block Mm -hmm. out the sunlight and there is shutters up time and there is shutters down time and it's very carefully regimented (laughs) but they think about time in terms of external cues like bells and lights uh, Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. enforced on on the population to say this is how we will have a functioning society where there is actually some shared sense of what time it is. Right. Yeah. Because you kind of have a species that's developed on a world that does have day cycles and how do you manage that where there isn't any yes and there's this tension between the two different cities and two different ways of life and how those two Mm -hmm. different uh cities break down when it comes to what privilege is 
and how mm. different people in society work. So there's a lot of very cool in things that are just sprinkled incidentally through the text that make you pause and go, oh, that's a really interesting idea in the way that mm -hmm. it doesn't dump a whole lot of world building on you. It just makes you think about it as it comes across. So I really like mm -hmm. that side of things. The other thing that I really enjoyed about this book is it has a strong theme of translation and language. The very first thing that you read before you even get on to part one is a translator's note, uh, which is saying that this manuscript has been translated from the original Zeosphanti and Argelan into peak English. Uh, and it, like, is a, it's a lovely little uh, framing thing about the academic who has been uh, mm -hmm. translating it. And it's, there's a note that says, Where the settlers on January, which is the name of the planet is a nice link to the 10,000 <laughs> talks of January, <laughs> where the settlers on January chose to adopt archaic earth terms for common items, along with local flora and fauna. I have attempted to render this into peak English as seamlessly as possible. Hence, radio, lorry, pager, crocodile, cat, <laughs> bison, etc. And this is one of my favorite things about the book because you'll be reading it and it'll talk about like, oh yeah, there was a cat. And then it's like, you know, such and such as cat stalked into the room. We all tried to avoid the green spikes. And you're like, what? what? <laughs> because I love it when books do that. Yeah, it's, it uses that. very familiar words. There's very few nouns in it that you wouldn't recognize. But the yeah. way that those words are used, <laughs> it really reads like someone has just sort of looked around, scratched their head and applied a random, vaguely relevant, like contextually <laughs> appropriate, but not really appropriate word to it. And it, co it covers oh, food stuff. Fun. It co Like the food stuff makes it really weird because... With animals, you're like, okay, so the animals don't look like the animals that we know. But then they'll be like, oh, such and such had tea. And then they'll describe this, like, claggy, sandy texture. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so as a reading experience, the stuff it is doing with language um, and different characters in it who speak different languages, trying to explain yeah. concepts to one another, and somebody thinks they understand what this concept is, and they use it in conversation, and everyone's like, I don't – what? What are you talking brilliant. about? So – if you enjoy sort of linguistic and translation nerdery, I think you will have a really good time with this book. Shit, this is the next one I need to read. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and as I said, it is very queer, uh, very character and feelings based. As I said, like the plot in and of itself is not enormously hooky. There's no real you know, unanswered question or driving narrative force. But you do enjoy spending time with Sophie and Mouth mm -hmm. and their groups of friends and acquaintances and enemies etc it has got some really good stuff about complicated and intense female friendships which i mm. liked especially that sort of queer girl liminal space of mm. having a crush on someone and not really knowing to the extent is this just an intense friendship do they like me back recognizing that mm. this person has quite a bit of power over you because of how you feel and that they probably mm. know that and they're probably manipulating you to some extent but you kind <laughs> of don't care so there's a lot of push and pull and power dynamics within friendships, which I thought was mm. a really nice, nice thing to explore and that you don't see explored much in books that are predominantly feelings based. There's no real right. romantic arc per se, but it's got some really mm. interesting things to say about how emotions can dictate our lives, which I liked. Mm. I'm trying to think like, 
sounds like if I'm trying to backlink it to the Light Brigade, maybe I'm looking at themes of like authoritarian government mm. Um, mm. and like being under control by your society. Yeah, and there's this like revolution element that goes through the whole book, which is almost <laughs> incidental. Like a lot of the characters are trying to create social change and yep. really believe in it and are trying to have a revolution. And there's a lot of that classic revolutionary theme of what what do you do once you have toppled the people oh, in power and are having to work out, oh shit, it's actually really difficult to put in place all of those <laughs> social change ideals that we thought, and now we're becoming the people that we hated. But that's yep. sort of happening yep. almost incidentally around all the other what stuff. What a fucking that, that, delight. I love this. <laughs> and all of us and all of the, like, the Les Amis, right? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I was really, I'm like, this is kind of very Les Amis. Yep. Oh, yep. Les Amis. Anyway. Chairs at empty tables. Yes, <laughs> but also, yes. you know, aliens who can give you visions of the, of their city with tentacles. So, you know. Excellent. Uh, we have always down for tentacles on this podcast. <laughs> we love every part of this. <laughs> but let's talk about some different aliens. Yes. Sure. Let's talk about being alien by way of culture. Um, so the next book is A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin. Yeah. Um, and this is a book about what it means to be on the periphery of a great empire that would really quite like to swallow you as a snack. Yep. Mm. And I have so many feelings about this because it's so brilliantly and subtly world built throughout. Um, and Arkady uses poetry as the vehicle of a lot of the culture in this book. Um, it actually reminded me a little bit of what some of our friends have been explaining um, the untamed to us and how a lot of Chinese is referential. Mm, um, mm. And how like this one character in the untamed who in translation speaks super awkwardly in the original language is actually speaking super elegantly because mm. it's all referential. So in A Memory Called Empire, we are following a young ambassador called Mahit who comes to the Teshkalan is that right? I'm going to go with that. Teshkalan Empire to try to prevent them from eating her little tiny station out in the boonies. Um, and she has been kind of following this dominant culture from afar for her whole life. It's why she was chosen. Um, and it really gets into what it means to be like influenced through the media of a bigger power. Mm. Um, from Mahit's feelings as she kind of becomes part of this empire um reminded me a lot of how weird it was for me to move to america and kind of come face to face with all of these things that i'd had referenced my whole life but hadn't really realized were having an influence on me mm. you know because american media kind of suffuses the world yeah right? yeah yeah and you don't realize how much it has because you don't think I certainly didn't think of myself as someone who was a fan of America, right. right? Who like studied American culture and suffused myself in that meaning. Yeah. But you come here and everything is already familiar, but also not quite. And it's weird. Like the power dynamic is very strange. And I think Mahit has to deal with all of these feelings of almost jealousy Mm. at how easy it is for people who are born and raised in this extremely ancient and referential culture to navigate its poetry and its ways of communication in ways that she cannot access. 
and yes, lots of feelings. It's also a story about like there's a lot of plot in this one. Um, so like there's a plot to kill the emperor who is maybe already dying, and a plot about which of the three imperial heirs will gain control of the <laughs> empire. And also there are Good these shit. aliens outside the borders of human space, which nobody knows about and only come up at the very like end of the book. Although it is like sprinkled through the early parts. Mm -hmm. And also Mahit's station has a secret, which is that people on that station have these little implants on their spinal column in their brain that record their memories. And then they implant them in the successors. So you might have 14 generations of memories in your brain as this kind of like weird reincarnation thing that's cool mm. except that the people don't come down directly like you just you integrate with them right yeah yeah i, I loved i loved the structure of this book when i read it i think uh -huh. it is so 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 clever and it immediately sets up a few really interesting plot mm. premises that it then just uses to rocket you through the book like <laughs> the idea of being an ambassador and coming to a place where your predecessor has disappeared in mysterious circumstances is an incredibly <laughs> well-worn trope for a reason yeah. because you've got you know outside a point of view coming to a new place which is already you've got a great you've got a mystery to solve you've got definitely some inbuilt politics you've got to work out what was going on like it, it's a wonderful trope i i love it whenever I see it. Plus, you've got the fact that Mahit arrives and immediately the one thing that she was meant to have going for her, which was the memories of her predecessors, mis it malfunctions. Yep. So she is left with a thing that nobody is meant to know that she has, which yep. is not working, that she is meant to have a lot of information that she doesn't have. So from the get-go, she's on the back foot. Yep, and it's so it's such a good book. I loved I loved the whole experience of reading this one. And there's this whole thing where they've given her a cultural attaché to help her, like guide her around, and she's just immediately enamored with this woman. She's like, she's so pretty and elegant, <laughs> and her poetry is so good. And one time she touched me on the wrist, and it was and amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> It is. Uh, she's like this. Such, such a sapphic mood. Yeah, yeah. She's this like peak competent slash disaster lesbian just trying to make yep. her way in the world. Yep. Yep. Um, and it's that thing where it's like Mahit is pretty sure she just likes this girl, but also she does kind of want to be her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so good. And I was having all of these thoughts as I was reading it um, about how the only way that an empire can survive as it like becomes old and ancient and crumbling is by constant conquest. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, it will collapse under the weight of its citizenry's expectations. And then I was just like, it's a shark. <laughs> gotta keep yeah, swimming. Gotta keep gills swimming. will go flop. Yep. 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 <laughs> And so you have this tension where, where like, one of the people who wants to become emperor, one of the ways that this um, society, which is based on Mesoamerican, uh, like, uh, Aztec, I want to say, probably, um, norms, is that a war general who has had lots of battles and won lots of battles can be acclaimed by the populace and, ris and like, raised up to be emperor by popularity, essentially. Mm. And so you have this carrot who's like, I want to fight something. And all of his supporters are like, we want him to fight something. 
Um, <laughs> and what do you and do if you have... haven't got a war? Yeah, what do you do if you haven't got a war? Uh, you go and conquer a tiny station that no one cares about in the middle of nowhere, Mahit. What you gonna do about that? <laughs> yeah. But there's also this tension between status quo and mm. longevity of tradition and change yes. if you are trying to preserve and grow an empire because the whole point of Mahit's culture and their memory implants is that it allows you to take advantage of the knowledge of preceding generations but of mm -hmm. course it becomes this immense bargaining chip for the safety of the station if you are dealing with a dying emperor who wants stability for his empire and thinks who wants immortality who wants immortality and on one hand that's a very personal goal on the other hand it's a way of saying here is how i can stabilize the emperor the empire if the emperor is technically eternal Mm. Yep. Mm. Things that you would not want Julius Caesar to have access to. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> we would literally be no. all be Roman. Well, I mean, Arcady Martin is a Byzantine historical yes. scholar, so clearly has a lot of knowledge and has done a lot of research about the ways in which these societies and politics can work, which really shines in the book. Right. Yeah. There's just so many lovely, gorgeous details of this city palace at the heart of the empire. And there's the endgame sequence involves our two main characters watching someone read a news broadcast on TV. And is somehow like one of the most tense oh, it's so climaxes intense. of any book. I'm just like, oh. literally, how did you do this? They're sitting on a sofa holding hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what is this bullshit? Oh, it's good shit. Yep. But speaking of palaces at the center of space empires. Yes. Who wants to talk about some fucking bones, <laughs> man? Bones. Do, do you guys want to talk about some bones? <laughs> always. Always bones. I feel like it's going to happen. It's going to happen because the sixth uh, novel on the best novel slate uh, this year is Gideon the Ninth by Tanzan Weir. Uh, which is a rollicking good time of a book. Uh, I read this last March, not this last March, March before last, of course. Um, and it's just so fucking good. You've heard the hype, dear listeners, and probably and you've listened to our Halloween episode, and you've yes. listened to our to our Halloween episode, our Goth Camp episode, as it were. Yes. Um, you pr possibly think that it's been overhyped at this point. I disagree. It has not. Uh, I think that it absolutely lived up to all of the hype. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. It is about a young disaster lesbian named <laughs> named Gideon, uh, who is kind of the adopted ward of the Ninth House, which is one of, as you may guess, nine houses that serve <laughs> the Emperor Undying, who is this, or the Necrolord Prime, as he's also <laughs> called. Um, and they are, uh, they receive an invitation, uh, that the, uh, heir to the house, uh, Harrow Hark, uh, is invited to come, the ball. come to the, come to the necro ball. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she's a, she's a, a necromancer and she is invited to bring herself and her cavalier, uh, to meet and hang, to, <laughs> To hang death out. to, hang to out. death prom to death prom to the bone prom yeah. um, <laughs> bone prom with... slash hunger games to the bone dome the, to the bone dome thank you Macy <laughs> she's going to yeet herself into the bone dome let's just <laughs> <God>. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> very little boning happens in the bone dome. I know. It's true. I think that was to Gideon's disappointment. I yeah. think Gideon was really hoping for more boning to happen in the bone dome. Um, yeah. This tone that we're discussing it with is absolutely the tone, tone of the of book, the book. dear listeners. Yeah. If you haven't read it yet, <clears throat> we're not mocking it. We're just, you we're know. We're doing homage. We're doing an homage to it, yes. So, uh... Gideon and, and Harrow go to the uh, Necroball, the Bone Dome, and <laughs> uh, and some stuff happens, and they fight a giant spider made of bones, and there's a mystery to solve, and it happens in this, like, ruins of this decaying. ancient palace, like, this decaying palace um, on what was possibly once Earth, and the seas have risen, so, like, the whole planet is just fucking dead. And this palace is incredibly dead and ruined and full of rot, and, um, it's so fucking good, and I love it a lot, and it's so funny as well, and... I, I think for me it kind of does a similar thing to what I was watching John Wick do yeah which is it has a bunch of things a bunch of set pieces that it really wants to play with it has a bunch of like skeleton crypto puzzles that it's gonna do and it's gonna drag you kicking and screaming by meme to the next one yes and you're gonna have such fun yes and i have big feelings about like how it uses those memes i'm glad you brought that up macy because like it uses memes as language and i'm wondering how I think that for most people it would be fairly accessible, but if you are an internet person and you are fluent with the current internet dialect, I think that it has like that deeper level of humor because it is referencing so many things. Mm. Well, I think that um, it's a little bit like reading Terry Pratchett if you're not British. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, like, I think that you can still get a shit ton out of it. Oh, um, yeah. But like, there are, la- there are layers and layers. Mm. Yes. Ogres have yes. layers. Like yeah. onions. Yeah. Freya, were you going to say something? I think a lot of the humour that comes out of this book is because of the voice. Like Gideon, mm. Gideon as a narrator is just hysterically funny yes. because she is constantly extremely judgy in a very funny <laughs> way. And she yep. is surrounded by people who are also hilarious and terrible. Yep. Yes. And they're hila- they <laughs> would be hilarious and terrible even if they were being presented to you in a more standard narration. It very much has this weird Agatha Christie vibe where you turn up to a large crumbling mansion full of weird-ass people with their own secrets <laughs> and yes, people yes, yes, start yes. dying. And so you could imagine... <laughs> God, that's exactly what it is! Yeah, yeah. It's an Agatha Christie novel crossed, crossed yes. with a skeleton uh, video game where you have to solve puzzles. That's fuck. basically that's basically where it's sitting. That's the God. Venn diagram. And if even if it was just horrible people dying off one by one, it would still be funny because the dialogue yeah. is hilarious and the people are awful in their own ways. But because yeah. of the way that Gideon is narrating it, you just get this whole other layer of hilarity, even when almost nothing is happening or terrible yeah. things are happening. It's still yeah. really, really funny. Yeah. Yeah. God. It just has like such a tight control over voice, yeah. which is deeply, deeply impressive. Um, and, you know, I'm actually really glad to see a novel that is so genuinely funny on the Hugo slate, because I feel like humor is something that gets overlooked in the awards. Because I think that we tend to like the more like serious kinds of kinds of novels for for awards, 
Um, and this one, in this one is is serious. It's like dealing with some very like a lot of death and like people <laughs> dying. Like that's serious. Um, but like with this amazing sense of humor. Right. Um, so I'm just I'm so delighted to see this on the slate this mm. year. It is also I will note the third FF book. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Covered. Packed with lesbians this year. Yeah. Just like tons and tons of lesbians. I'm down. Yeah. I know you're down. <laughs> you don't have to tell us that at this point, Macy. We know. Mm. But the, we know this about you and mm. we love you. There is a really huge, I think, diversity of tone in the slate mm. this year. Mm-hmm. Like all of these books have very, very different voices and very different narrative styles. Like if you put Middle Game and 10,000 Doors of January next to each other, you could yeah. read two sentences from either of them and know exactly which of them it was because they are very yes. different in terms of voice. I think City in the Middle of the Night probably comes closest to 10,000 Doors when it comes to, again, that literary voice, like a really mm-hmm. um, careful and gentle control of language. And Memory memory Called Empire, I think, had some really good turns of phrase, but it wasn't about the prose, but the prose was just being used very elegantly to convey mm. really interesting memory ideas. Memory Called Empire is a, big, is a kind of a knife of a book. Mm. right like it's very sharp it's very precise um and it's about language enough that it uses language beautifully but it is sci-fi yeah mm-hmm. it's gonna move mm-hmm. like sci-fi yeah actually yeah, this is another thing a lot of them a lot of these books have a theme of the power of words and language mm. like Ten Thousand mm-hmm. doors definitely middle game has a lot of meditation on language you know both as, in itself and yes. as set against mathematics and mathematics as language um city in the middle of the night again definitely memory called empire yes yeah lots of language stuff gideon really doesn't um i think gideon is too busy punching things to care about how she describes them no it's it's too busy doing the the thing to talk about the thing yeah right exactly (laughs) it's doing language really well but it doesn't sit back and reflect upon it it's just too busy exactly punching you in the face with a meme also, can we just take a moment to be incredibly impressed? There are no men on this slate. There are not. This mm. this is a slate full of women. And I think uh, I went and I looked. The last time that a cis man was on the slate was in 2018. Mm. Um, so we've had a... That, that was 2018? It was John Scalzi. Mm. I forget if it was 2018 for the books that were in 2017. Anyway, anyway, uh, doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, we've had a couple like really amazingly solid years uh, of just people of other genders getting uh, like swiping the entire uh, category for best novel. So props I mean, to them. Keep doing the books. Yep. Like, yeah, these are amazing books. And if we keep having more and more years like this, I'm going to be very happy. Yes, oh, me yeah. too. Me too. Um I'm extremely, extremely happy about this. And also, I do not... Um, choosing. Yeah, choosing is the big one. Well, this, I this don't the thing envy with preferential voting, is at least you can just, you can put them there That's... and you can go, ugh, and then you can sit there and switch two. And then switch have like a three. small crisis about yep. it and then yep. switch yes. them again. Uh, and anyway, yes. darling listeners, we hope that this has been helpful to you, but you should really go and read these because they're amazing. Yes. I don't think it's been helpful to me, honestly. I think it's made it worse for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You have to go and read City in the Middle of the Night now and that's just going to make the whole thing worse for you. Oh my God. 
All of these sound incredible, honestly. So congratulations to uh, the nominees this year. Congratulations. Congratulations, everyone. Uh, To the people who are voting, good luck. (laughs) Have fun. Have fun. everybody thanks for joining us for this episode of be the serpent a podcast of extremely extremely deep literary merit we were even more literarily meritorious than usual this time and it's a thing of great pleasure to watch the hugo voting fan community continue to recognize and boost even more queer and female voices demonstrating conclusively that the sad puppies have been yoked back to the obscurity in which they belong It would, however, be nice to see this slate a little less white in the future. That said, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on July 1st, we'll be discussing pew-pew battle tactics. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the final chapters of His Majesty's Dragon by Naomi Novik. So, if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat, which is linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And by the way, if you are up for a Hugo, I'd vote for you. You'd deserve it.